taken from Jeremiah chapter 52 and is found on page 821 and it's quite a hefty passage so prepare yourself. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards the Araba, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon killed the son of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison till the day of his death. On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, under, in the city along with the rest of the craftsmen, and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But Nebuzaradan left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried all the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the basins, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, lampstands, dishes, and bowls used for drinking offerings, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea, and the twelve bronze balls under it, and the movable sedans which King Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. Each was four fingers thick and hollow. The bronze capital on the top of one pillar was five cubits high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar, with its pomegranates, was similar. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides, 
The total number of pomegranates above the surrounding network was a hundred. The commander of the guard took as prisoners Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officers in charge of the fighting men and seven royal advisers. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, sixty of whom were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Ribla. There at Ribla, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity, away from her land. This is the number of, pe- of the people Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In Nebuchadnezzar's eighteenth year, 832 people from Jerusalem. In his twenty-third year, 745 Jews taken into exile by Nebuzaradan, the commander of the imperial guard. There were 4,600 people in all. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, in the land of Awel Marduk, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, on the 25th day of the 12th month, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honour higher than those of the other kings who were put with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. Thank you, Sarah, very much. And let's pray together. Well, that's uh, one reading that looks all pretty depressing. So we pray you'd help us to uh, get our heads around this. Please help us to understand this rightly. Uh, We believe ultimately this was written for our benefit today. So we pray, Lord, it might be beneficial for us as we seek to study and to understand and apply this to our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. I have to say there are, uh, there are a few things which um, irritate me more than parents who make threats to their children and don't follow them through. Now, now obviously, that doesn't cover such things as, uh, if you don't come in now, I'm going to kill you. Um, I'm, I'm quite pleased they don't follow through on that one. But it's the kind of things, you know, I've got quite used to hearing at places like Asda or Sainsbury's or whatever. Do that again and I'll smack you. Well, they do do it again, and then the parents don't smack them, which is probably just as well these days. Or, uh, or over lunch, um, if you don't say sorry to your sister, you're going to have no ice cream with your pudding. No apology. Seconds of ice cream follow later on. Or uh, uh, if you don't help empty the dishwasher, there's going to be no screen, t- screen time until Sunday. And so the 11-year-old storms upstairs to their bedroom, uh, and guess what? They get out their laptop and they get on Instagram telling their friends how, how uh, unreasonable their parents are. Or uh, we don't swear in this house, and if you do it one more time, you're not going to the party on Saturday. Guess what happens on Saturday? <laughs> Well, I just sometimes just long that parents would uh, uh, not make empty promises. Never threaten something if you're not prepared to follow it through. But this isn't a sermon or uh, some kind of seminar on good parenting or anything like that. Uh, it is just, uh, nor am I, I hope, a grumpy old man, um, as you might be thinking. Um, but it's just that that kind of thing uh, makes me very grateful to God that he always keeps his word. 
always. And this evening we're thinking this. God means what he says. That's what we see here in Jeremiah chapter 52. God means what he says and then does what he says he will do. God follows through. We know where we stand with him. You know, you could have a boss, perhaps, um, for instance, uh, and and you just never know where you stand with them. You don't know when they turn up in the morning. Is it going to be happy Ron today, or is it going to be horrendous, unreasonable Ron, who is my boss today? Um, Is it going to be reliable Ron or unpredictable Ron, who is my boss today? And that's very difficult in, in a working situation, isn't it? But God, our God, is the ultimate in reliability and in predictability. Because he always says what he'll do, and then he, then he does what he says he will do. He follows through, he keeps his promises. You see, it's actually about uh, uh, communication. There was a woman with a four-year-old son in church one day, and, uh, and then before the children went out, uh, he said to, uh, in a rather over-loud voice, uh, Mummy, I need a pee. And, uh, and she said, shh, we don't say that. We say, I have to whisper. I, I want to whisper. So next week he was in church, but not with his mum, with his dad. And uh, he leaned over and he said, Daddy, I have to whisper. To which his dad replied, well, just whisper in my ear. <laughs> you see, this is about communication. That wasn't good communication, was it? And this last uh, chapter of Jeremiah, and you might be thinking, oh, hooray, last chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 52. Last sermon on Jeremiah for a while. Uh, It's a bit odd in some ways. Because look at chapter 51, the end of chapter 51 on page 821. It says, the words of Jeremiah end here. And you might be expecting, you know, if you were reading that, you might, and if it was printed differently, so that was the end of a page of our Bibles, you might think you'd turn over and have the next chapter of the Bible, from, or the next book of the Bible, Lamentations. Um, but it's not. Uh, it turns over and you've got Jeremiah chapter 52. And Jeremiah 52 is a bit like a, an appendix or a, a PS. But why is it there? Well, it's there because God is a great communicator. It's there because God just wants to make sure that we get the key message of Jeremiah. So he gets, uh, God gets someone to write his appendix and to say to us this, that God means what he says and then he does what he says he'll do. He's wanting us to know that Jeremiah spoke the truth. Jeremiah spoke God's words so here we've got a, uh, it's, in, it's in 2 Kings 25, but it's, it's, a, it's a recap really of, of what happened at the end of Jerusalem. Jeremiah spent 40 years telling guys, look, this is going to happen unless you change your ways. And uh, they didn't believe him. But Jeremiah was a true prophet, speaking God's true words. And this happened. God means what he says, and then he does what he says he will do. So, Jeremiah chapter 52. Uh, we're just going to have a, a, a brief uh, look through this and focus on a couple of things. First, verses 1 to 16 here, if you look over these verses, you see it's about the fall of Jerusalem and the capture of King Zedekiah. 
The royal household get executed. King Zedekiah is captured, tortured, enslaved as a king. So look at, for instance, the verses 10 and 11. What a horrible, horrible thing. There it read that a king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. And that was the last thing Zedekiah saw. Because verse 11, then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shekels and took him to Babylon where he put him in prison until the day of his death. We don't know how long he lasted, but it was pretty grim, wasn't it? Pretty grim? I think that's an English understatement. What a dreadful way. What a dreadful thing. That's the last thing you saw. Your son's being slaughtered before you and a load of other people as well. But if we just go back a few verses, um, go back to verse 4, for instance, and 5. It's a siege of Jerusalem. It lasts about 18 months. We're talking about 588 to 587 BC. Uh, Horrendous conditions. Uh, We think probably parents began eating their children to survive. And uh, and the reason for it is verses 2 and 3 there. Uh, You look at uh, uh, talking about um, Zedekiah. It's a great summary, isn't it? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. And then verse 3, which is really the summary verse for this chapter, it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. And that's a really forceful ejection, okay? It's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's throwing them out violently and forcefully. It's a bit like an, an ejector seat on an aeroplane. Um, once when we were in Lowestoft, um, we were uh, on the beach there, and there was a uh, harrier was just uh, in front of us on the beach. And uh, when the harrier does its hover in one of these air displays, their, their little trick, they kind of do a bow, and then they take off and go away. Uh, unfortunately, the pilot of the plane, after he'd done the bow, pushed the wrong lever. Apparently, there are two levers next door to each other, just on the left-hand side. And uh, he pushed the wrong one. The engine cut out. The Harrier did a belly flop into the sea, and the pilot had about half a second to make his decision, reach down, pull the thing between his legs and eject. The noise of the ejection as the uh, explosive charges on the canopy went off, and as he shot out of the plane safely, actually broke his ankle when he landed because he hit the plane when he landed. But anyway, the, the noise of the ejection was louder than the flopping of the plane into the sea, but he got out just a fraction of a second before the plane hit the sea. And, uh, um, and it was, uh, but this, the idea here of this um, uh, ejection of God's people is just, uh, is like that ejector seat, the force of that ejector seat as, the, as it goes through a canopy of the plane and the noise of the explosion of that. That's what the idea of what you have here. It's a, it's a forcible, you're out, but with, with fierce determination and force. And then, Verses 17 to 23, you've got the sacking of the temple. You see the things like the gold, the bronze and the gold and the silver, um, as, uh, as Sarah read it there, they, they, uh, it gets raided, uh, all the stuff, the valuable stuff gets removed, uh, and then they torch it. And to understand how significant that is, what about, uh, well, that's some, some would say that's Taj Mahal, that, that's the most beautiful building in the world. In Jeremiah's day, the most beautiful building of the world was the temple in Jerusalem. So you're thinking, actually, that building there being raided and all the precious jewels are part of the marble that the Taj Mahal is built off. The, the precious jewels are, are taken out of there, the gold inlays and so on are taken out, and, uh, and then the whole place is destroyed and what can be burns. It's like the destruction, the wholesale and deliberate destruction of the Taj Mahal. 
And, uh, and for the Jews, this was the center of their religion. Gone. And they're meant to be God's own people. But it's now a ruin. And then you see the deportations. Look at verses 24 to 30. Um, 24 to 27, the backroom staff are executed. Now, you, you look at verses 24 to 30. The commander of the guard took as prisoners Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Those still in the city took the officer in charge. Now, you look through that list of people, and here we are. It's like he's taking these guys. So he took the Archbishop of Canterbury. All right? Uh, he took um, that guy. He's the um, education uh, uh, secretary, secretary of uh, state for... Uh, um, no, it's not education, it's, employ- uh, it's employment, Damien Hines. And, uh, and then he took the, um, the Dean of Westminster, who's that character. Uh, and then it's saying he took uh, Penny Mordaunt, who's the Defence Secretary. And then he took the, uh, that guy's the head of the Civil Service. Uh, that's Sir Mark Sedwell. Uh, so he was taken as well. And he took number two to the Archbishop of Gantry. That's the Archbishop of York. Okay, so that's what he's saying here. The people he took there in verses 24 to 27. And what does he do? He had them executed. So you wipe all those people out, okay? And then a load more as well. So that's what's going on there, okay? And, uh, and then uh, a load of people were deported to Babylon. It didn't happen all at once. Some of it happened in 598. Some of it happened in 587. Some of it happened in 582. So, and it took a long time to get there. And it happened over a period of years. And, uh, uh, and then when you look at the numbers there, look at verses uh, 28, 29 and 30, and it's 4,600 people in all, you think, well, that's not very many actually, is it? It doesn't seem like a whole nation. And actually there's a discrepancy between what you see there and what we read in two kings. There are various possible explanations. It's probably the fact that here, these are the men he's been counting. That's what most people think. It's the men who have been counting. But it's savage. If you were a Jew at the time, it's just outrageous. No pity for the city. Many, many people died. The city's uninhabitable. The walls are gone. The temple's gone. The, the army is gone. Somehow they got out. We're not quite sure how. But uh, you can read it there. How do they get out when the place is surrounded? Uh, most of the leaders are either dead or they've been lined up for deportation. Um, some are left there to do verse 16, to do the farming uh, of the land for the Babylonians. But the promised land's gone. It's over. And why? Well, it's back in verse 3. It says, uh, uh, this was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them, ejected them from his presence. Because God is always true to his word. True to his word through Jeremiah that this would happen. It's just telling us, isn't it? That God means what he says. And that he then does what he says he will do. He is reliable. Trouble is, unreliability is built into our culture today. We kind of expect things to be unreliable, don't we? Or people to be unreliable. You know, I'll call you back. But they never do. Or uh, I'll put you on hold, I'll be back. And then somehow you get cut off. Or uh, you arrive at host station to catch the 852, but it's cancelled. Dare I say it again. Or uh, uh, your parcel will be delivered tomorrow, 
And actually, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, really? Hope so. Be nice. Or, uh, you know, we have a world, don't we, of built-in unreliability. But not in the most important part of life. Not when it comes to God. God means what he says and he does what he says he's going to do. When it really matters, in all the big things in life, the God we deal with and who deals with us is someone who is utterly, totally, completely, totally reliable. He means what he says. And then he does what he says he's going to do. He created the universe. He did. We rebelled against him. And that really matters because it separates us from God from all eternity. That's what God says and he means it and it's true. And Jesus died for us, for our sinful hearts. He said he would and he did it. And Jesus said he would be raised from the dead and he was totally reliable. And Jesus says that when we trust him, then we really will be in paradise for eternity with him. And Jesus promised that one day he would return to this earth as the Lord and Master of all. And he will, because God always does what he says he will do. And Jesus says that when he returned, at the end of time, it's going to be judgment day. And that's true too. He means it. And he says our eternal destiny depends on what our response is to Jesus. Heaven or hell. And he means that too. And in the meantime he says, I'm going to be with you through good or bad. And he means it. And he is. And he will be. And he says, I will comfort those who mourn. And he really means that. And he says, I will lift up the downcast and I'll be close to those who need me going through tough times. That's true, he does. And I will strengthen the downhearted. He does, time and time again. God means what he says. And he does what he says he will do. And the book of Jeremiah proves it. And Jeremiah chapter 52 tells us that. Now, I hope you see and understand that the way we find out what God is saying to us is first and foremost, because he promises to, through the Bible. That's where he promises to speak to us. He may speak in other ways, but he promises to speak to us in the Bible. So I hope that makes you want to trust your Bibles and to read your Bibles. To find out more of what God says, our reliable God, and to grow in our relationship with him. God means what he says, and he does what he says he'll do. So, are you learning from what God has said? By reading it? By learning bits of it? Are you reading your Bible and praying every day? I mean, that, that, was a, that was a quaint old term, it's a quiet time. So I grew up, when I became a Christian, people talk about your quiet time. But it's fundamental, which is spending, put it aside, a little bit of time each day to be quiet and to read your Bible and to pray. And uh, uh, it's a rather quaint phrase, but you know, when things go wrong in someone's life, would it be a Christian leader or any of us? You know, things that, you know, we go off the rails or whatever it would be, or we fall to some temptation or whatever. I think a good question to ask is, 
when did your tem- when did your quiet time stop? Very often, when things go wrong morally for a Christian person, it's because we've stopped reading our Bibles and praying, and it may have happened months and months ago, years ago. Got to keep on doing it. Got to keep on doing it. Because it's through that, it's a relationship. That's how we, it's how we maintain our relationship. Mean, you, know, you wouldn't have a marriage with someone and just kind of not bother to talk to them. It's not really a marriage, is it? And that's how we communicate with God, with our Lord Jesus, by reading his word and by talking to him in prayer. We need to do that. So that's Jeremiah 52. God means what he says. Jeremiah spent 51 chapters saying this is going to be horrendous unless you change your lives. They didn't. It was. God means what he says. And he does what he say he'll do. But it's not the end of the sermon quite. There are a couple of things to remember. The first one is this. Uh, Remember that your sin matters to God, therefore. And uh, actually, I guess the truth of the matter is that our sin matters a lot more to God than it does to us, usually. And that's, I think, one of the things that Jeremiah 52 teaches us, that our sin really does matter to God. This is how how, uh, Susanna Wesley defined sin to her young son, John. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God and takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. Your sin matters. It really matters. So, for instance, the fact they say you struggle to get on with your mum or dad, or even to like them very much. That actually matters, you know. It's not, it's not one of those things you kind of, you know, and maybe they died years ago and you're still resenting them. And that still matters, you know. Matters to God. Or maybe the fact you've fallen out with your best friend at school, that matters to God. Or maybe... Maybe you haven't spoken to a neighbour since they parked across your driveway in 1998. Something like that. Matters to God. Or the fact that you speak foul things to friends about one of your teachers at school. It matters to God. It all matters to God. Yet sometimes we don't even recognise our sin. How about this? Anyone recognise that lady? Sophia Loren, she's 84 now, I think she's a bit younger there. Anyway, uh, she said this once, listen to this, I'm not a practicing Christian, but I pray. I read the Bible, it's the most beautiful book ever written, I should go to heaven, otherwise it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there, and I should go straight, straight to heaven. How can you be so blind? How can you think you're so 
wonderful. I find that just extraordinary. Our sin matters to God. And that's why the Babylonians invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and deported the best people from the land, because our sin matters to God. That's why Jesus came and lived and died. He went through an agony for us on an old wooden cross for you and for me because our sin matters to God and he wanted to deal with it once and for all and he did because our sin matters to God. And the second thing, remember, you matter to God. You matter to God. The supreme happiness of life is a conviction that we are loved. And you know something? Jeremiah chapter 52 tells us that we matter to God. You matter to God. Hugely. You're loved. It's not just that sin matters to God, but that you matter to God so much. So much. That God acts to deal with human sin. Because he loves you. And you matter to him more than you ever believe possible. God judged his people here because of their sin. In Jesus, he judged his own son on the cross because of our sin. Because we matter to God and he wants you with him for all eternity. And the really encouraging thing in Jeremiah chapter 52 is this thing at the end. It's weird. Look at verses 31 to 34 with me. What this is telling us is that, well, this is what it's telling us. Those last few verses of Jeremiah are telling us, guys, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. In uh, uh, 31 to 34, Jehoiachin replaced Zedekiah as king of Judah. He reigned for three months in Jerusalem as an 18-year-old. He surrendered the city to Nebuchadnezzar and was deported to Babylon, where he spent 37 years in a Babylonian prison. Then Nebuchadnezzar died and was succeeded by his son, Awal Marduk, who you see there in verse 31. And uh, for some reason, he released Jehoiachin. Uh, and actually, what it, what it says literally, um, uh, where it says he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison, it, it literally says he lifted up Jehoiachin's head, and he gave him a seat of honour, and he spoke good things with him, literally. And then, at the end, look at the end of verse 34, he gave him a state pension. That was very decent, wasn't it? Now, why would you do that? What's going on here? Why would Awal Marduk do that? We're, we're not told. But there's a glimmer of, of light here. There's a glimmer of hope at a, at a 37-year-old long tunnel. God hasn't forgotten. His people still matter to him. He's promised that actually it's from the people in Babylon that there is the future there. And it's through the line of David that there's the future there. And Jehoiachin is in that line of David. And sometimes we can't quite believe it, can we? 
His people matter to him. We matter to him. You matter to God. And there is hope, as we saw on the screens. There is hope, hope for the future here. And sometimes we can't quite believe it. Me? Yes, you. Mattering to God. Especially you. And God's people in Judah, they'd rebelled time and again. They'd been exiled. They were there, off over in Babylon. Um, they'd rebelled time and again. They'd lost the city, the temple, their identity, their leaders, their land. It's all gone. And there's a tiny little remnant just over there, 1,200 odd miles away. 1,200 miles from a home that didn't exist. And yet God's people matter to God. We are God's people. And we matter to God. He never forget us. Never, ever. And he said to me, prove it. Well, God has. It goes back to a cross. In fact, it always goes back to a cross. As the God-man, our Saviour, dies a physically and spiritually agonising death, he had laid aside his majesty and glory to come to be cursed on a cross for our freedom, for our salvation, for our eternity. He didn't have to do that. But he chose to. He could have backed out even the night before he was crucified. He could have said no. He could have refused. But he went to a cross and he died for you and for me. And why did he do that? Because we matter. Because he loves us. And we matter to him far more than you ever thought possible. And God says, I love you. I'll give my son for you. And I will die for you. And I will live for you. And I want you to give up your sin and live for me today and every day. Jeremiah 52, God means what he says. And then he does what he says he'll do. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are wonderfully reliable. You do what you say, and we can trust you, and you've given yourself for us, and you will get us to heaven. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to live for you, and to trust you, and to be warmed by this uh, <coughs> funny old chapter at the end of Jeremiah. Lord, thank you for that hope at the end of a huge, long tunnel, that light burning there of a hope for the future. Please, Lord, do you encourage us with these words of yours and help us to walk with you this week, we pray. Amen.